going to start with a word of prayer. I'm delighted to see you all here today. As I said, we've got people from all over the country watching, which is a real blessing. Um, we want to open and with a word of prayer and ask that the Lord will go ahead and show up as we study his word today. So I'm going to offer two prayers today. One is for the study of scripture, and the other is just for uh, the present crisis that we find ourselves in, just asking the Lord to bless our nation and bless the world and bless those who are working in the healthcare communities. So uh, let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. And this is a prayer on behalf of the medical community and all those who are in need at this time. Almighty God, whose blessed Son, Jesus Christ, went about doing good and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Continue, we beseech thee, this, his gracious work among us, especially during this COVID-19 pandemic. Cheer, heal, and sanctify the sick. To doctors and nurses grant skill, sympathy, and patience, and send down thy blessing on all who labor to prevent suffering. All this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> okay, well, we are returning today to our study of Matthew's Gospel. So those of you who are joining us for the first time, we are in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to go ahead and read through just the uh, first few verses, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, be sure to open them, and you can follow along. For those of you who may be joining me for the first time, I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. You may have another translation, whether it be the NIV or the RSV or something like that. All the translations are fine, but if your translation is slightly different from mine, that's the reason. So Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. <clears throat> I mentioned last week that as we were making our way through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, that had we not been interrupted by this present pandemic, we would have been right in line with the events of Holy Week. We would have been studying the story of Jesus' triumphal entry 
at the time that the church was actually commemorating these events. Unfortunately, that's not the case for us today. But these are events that are nevertheless worthy of our time and attention, not just at a particular point in the year, uh, but throughout the entire year. Uh, we are coming here in Matthew chapter 21 to the climax of Jesus' life and ministry. These are the most important events in the life of our Lord, as we're going to see. But they are not just the most important events in the life of our Lord. These are the most important events in all of history. Now, if you've been with me or you have studied the Gospel of Matthew, you know that Jesus has, by this point, steadfastly placed his face toward Jerusalem. He is making his final journey to that holy city. Uh, a little reminder of the geography of ancient Palestine in the first century. Um, it was basically divided into three sections. The northernmost region of what we call Palestine today was known as Galilee. It was a densely populated area. It was a prosperous area, the wealthiest section of the uh, region. It was a cosmopolitan place mixed with all kinds of people. Uh, there were Jews there, large pockets of Jews living in Galilee, but there were also uh, large numbers of Gentiles as well. In fact, there were a whole series of, a series of Gentile cities known as the Decapolis, Deca meaning 10, 10 Gentile cities located up there in this area. So it was a, a very different kind of region, a great melting pot located at the crossroads of trade. And it was here in Galilee that Jesus spent the lion's share of his ministry. Now, we all know uh, that Jesus did spend time in Jerusalem. In fact, John's gospel seems to indicate to us that Jesus started his ministry in Jerusalem, but he quickly ran afoul of the Jewish religious leaders and withdrew to Galilee. So we know that Jesus ministered for about three years. The bulk of that time was spent in this northernmost region of Galilee. Then to the south, there was the area around Jerusalem, which was known as Judea. And so that was where the holiest city for all Jews was located. Jesus from time to time would go up to Jerusalem. Uh, we know he did that at least three times over the course of his ministry to participate in the various feasts of the Jews, particularly the Passover. But as I said, he spent the greater part of his ministry in the north. And then sandwiched between Galilee to the north and Judea to the south was this swath of land known as Samaria. Uh, it was the ancestral home of a people who were related to the Jews, but they had also intermarried with the Gentiles. And they were known as the Samaritans, and they were highly despised by the Jews. As much as the Jews may have disliked Gentiles, let me tell you something, they disliked the Samaritans even more. They regarded the Samaritans as half-breeds. Now, what's interesting in Matthew chapter 20 and 21 is that we know that when Jesus made his final journey to Jerusalem, we know the exact route that he took. He crossed over the Jordan River from Galilee and passed down the east bank of that river and then recrossed at a place called Jericho, which is the oldest city on the face of the earth. Um, well known if you know your Old Testament history. It was here that uh, the children of Israel first entered the promised land. Uh, you know the story, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Well, this is where this took place. Most Jews, if they were traveling from Galilee in the north to Judea in the south to Jerusalem, would take this longer Transjordan route. Now, this was not the most direct route. The most direct route from Galilee to Judea to Jerusalem would have been through Samaria. But because the Jews hated the Samaritans so much, uh, they were reluctant to pass through Samaritan territory. 
Now, John chapter 4 tells us that on at least one occasion, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. When it says that he had to pass through Samaria, it probably means that he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to pass through Samaria. But there would have been nothing that would have made it absolutely necessary to pass through that region. Most Jews, as I said, took the longer Transjordan route. And on this last journey to Jerusalem, that was the route that Jesus took, the longer route, the one that would have made his disciples much more comfortable. And we know that because chapter 20 ends with these verses, verses 29 and following, and as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. So Jesus left Galilee. He's making his final journey south toward Jerusalem. He crosses the Jordan River, travels down the east bank of that river, recrosses at Jericho, which is slightly northeast of Jerusalem, and then he makes the final push up to the holy city. Now I say up to, even though he was traveling south, because when you went up to Jerusalem, uh, you always went up to the city. First of all, it was located on a tell, that is, it was located on a hill. And the other thing was, because of its significance, Jerusalem was always regarded as the highest place for Jews. So you always went up to Jerusalem, no matter what point of the compass you were traveling from. So Jesus is making his final journey to Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up the narrative today in chapter 21. We're told that Jesus finally enters the city. This is going to be entering the city for the very last time. This inaugurates the most important week in Jesus' life and ministry, and indeed, it inaugurates the most important week in all of history. Uh, we know that Jesus lived on this earth for approximately 33 years, and we know that Jesus ministered for three of those years. And yet what's fascinating is that all four of the Gospels give a disproportionate amount of attention and space to just the last eight days. Think about that. Jesus lived for 33 years, ministered for three years, but the Gospels give a disproportionate amount of space to just the last week of the Lord's life. And Matthew gives a quarter of his entire narrative to just the events of these last eight days, chapters 21 through 28. Mark is even more impressive. He gives one-third of his narrative, chapters 11 through 16, to just the last eight days of Jesus' life. Luke's gospel gives one-fifth of the narrative, the latter part of chapter 19 through chapter 24, and John, most impressive of all, listen to this, gives one-half of his entire narrative, one-half of the gospel of John, chapters 12 through 21, to just the last eight days of Jesus' life. Another way of looking at this is if you add up all the chapters in the four Gospels, you'll discover that there are 89 of those. Fully one-third, 29 and a half chapters in the Gospels are dedicated to just these last eight days. And mind you, it's not just the Gospels that put this attention on the events of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, his death, his resurrection. Uh, this is found throughout the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have one of the earliest creedal statements. Some scholars would say the earliest creedal statement of the Christian community. Uh, keep your finger there in Matthew and turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, if you listen to the Easter broadcast, this was the text that I preached on for Easter. And on 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the Apostle Paul 
sums up what became the early preaching of the Christian community. And listen to what he says. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul is speaking to the Corinthians, and he's telling them, or reminding them, bringing to their memory the message that he first proclaimed to them, the message that he says is of first importance. And what was that message of first importance? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. How many of you in the liturgy are familiar with these words? Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has what? Died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Isn't it interesting that Jesus spent 33 years on this earth, three years preaching, teaching, ministering, but when Paul speaks of a matter of first importance, he doesn't even mention Jesus' teaching. There's no mention here of the Sermon on the Mount. There's no mention of the great miracles that Jesus performed, like the feeding of the 5,000. There's no mention of Jesus raising anybody from the dead. The matters of first importance, that which is foundational to all of Christianity, are the events of these last eight days. Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection. Uh, you see this very clearly in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, you'll notice that the Apostles' Creed starts off by speaking about God, the Father Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth. The second article goes on to speak about Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, and what? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Isn't it interesting that the whole of Jesus' life is summed up with the words, born of the Virgin Mary, and then it immediately skips ahead to suffered under Pontius Pilate. The intervening years, 33 years, are completely eliminated in the creed. Here's the way Karl Barth, who was one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century, put it. He said, the fact that Christ died and rose again is a reduction of the whole life of Jesus. The whole life of Jesus comes under the heading, he suffered and was raised. So when we turn to Matthew chapter 21, as important as this whole gospel has been, we are really looking at the most important events. As far as the early Christians were concerned, what Jesus said, what Jesus taught was very important. But what was of first importance was not what Jesus taught. It's what Jesus did. It's what he accomplished in this last week of his life and his ministry. So when you get to Matthew chapter 21, you come to that place where you feel as though you need to take off your shoes because you are really standing on holy ground. So let's go ahead and look at the events of the triumphal entry, the events of that first Palm Sunday, the beginning of this most important, this very holy week. Uh, there are a number of things to note about Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem, his final journey to the place. Uh, the first thing to note is that this was a planned demonstration. Sometimes when we read the events of Palm Sunday, we almost get the impression that the people erupted in a spontaneous celebration of Jesus' arrival. They were just taking off their cloaks and throwing them down on the ground in front of his mount, that they were tearing the palm branches from the trees and shouting Hosanna in the highest, as though this was a, something that had automatically erupted in the hearts of the people. 
Uh, but that's not actually the case at all. Uh, this was all planned by Jesus well in advance. He knew this was going to be his final journey to Jerusalem. He knew that this was what his life and his ministry was all about, and he wanted there to be no mistaking what he had come to do. You'll recall, if you've been with me in Matthew, that as far back as Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has already started to lose the large numbers of people that had been following him up to this point. Matthew chapter 12 tells us that the people had become indifferent toward Jesus. The Jewish religious leaders, that is to say the scribes and the Pharisees, had moved from indifference to hostility. Uh, they were actually guilty of willful unbelief, not a matter of doubt, but they simply refused, in spite of Jesus' miracles, to believe. You'll recall that on one occasion, Jesus had cast a demon out of a person, and the people were celebrating this, and they went to the Jewish religious leaders, and the religious leaders said it's because he has a demon that he is capable of casting out demons. It is by Beelzebul, it is by Satan that he casts out demons. Now, Jesus, of course, corrected that. He said a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. But the Jewish religious leaders despised Jesus. They were so jealous of Jesus that in spite of the works, in spite of all that he had been doing, they refused to believe. When we looked at Matthew chapter 12, we said that this was really the unforgivable sin. This is what we call blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They were convicted in their hearts, convicted in their minds that Jesus really was the Son of God, and yet they still refused to believe. So by the time you get to Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 21, I want you to understand the huge crowds that Jesus had been teaching up there in Galilee. You recall that on one occasion, 5,000 people followed Jesus, and that was just the men, didn't count the women and children. And Jesus had fed them with five loaves of bread and two small fish. Jesus was a great hero to the people. He was very popular. But the gospel narratives bear witness to the fact that those huge crowds by this point had started to dissipate. In fact, when Jesus went toward Jerusalem, when he first left Galilee, crossed the Jordan River, and made his way south toward Jericho, he only had a handful of followers. Now, this becomes very clear when you read John's gospel. And let me just say, it is sometimes helpful and important to actually read the other gospels for background. They actually provide us with some much-needed information to understand what is happening in Jesus' life, particularly in this last week. Let me show you what I mean. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn ahead to John chapter 6 for just a moment. John chapter 6 uh, begins with the story of the feeding of the 5,000. So you have 5,000 men and uh, then women and children. They're all ecstatic about the fact that Jesus is able to um, feed them. Remember, this was an agrarian culture. Um, People couldn't, if they were hungry, just go to the Paris Teeter or down to the Publix in order to buy food. That was not possible. Um, so the fact that Jesus in this agrarian culture could take five loaves of bread, two small fish, and feed 5,000 plus people, that was a tremendous miracle. And when Jesus moved on from that region, the people were so ecstatic about his abilities, we're told they followed him to the other side of the lake. And when they met him on the other side of the lake, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, but you're looking for me, basically, he says, for all the wrong reasons. He said, do not strive for the food that satisfies only for a time, but then leaves you hungering again, but instead hunger for that which will satisfy you for eternity. 
And they said, well, what is this food that satisfied for eternity? And that's when Jesus goes on to say, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me shall never hunger, and whoever trusts in me shall never thirst. It was a wonderful teaching, Jesus saying, what you're really looking for, what satisfies your soul and your spirit is to have a relationship with me. But look at what happens. Luke chapter 6, verse 41, same chapter in which you have the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 41 says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down to earth from heaven. And then you skip ahead to verses 60 through 61, and it says this, and when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And they took offense. And verse 66 says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You'll note that the people who are now turning back and no longer following Jesus are not the Jewish religious leaders. We're told many of his disciples took offense. They said this is a hard saying. The word that is translated hard there, we've looked at it before, is the Greek word skleros. It's the word from which we get the term scleroderma, a hardening of the skin. Well, that's what happened. The people didn't weren't struggling with what Jesus was saying. It wasn't a case where this was a hard thing to understand. They understood what Jesus meant. What they meant was that this is a saying that is hard for us to accept. This man claims to be able to satisfy the hunger in our souls, in our spirits, and we find that hard to accept, and many of his disciples turned back and followed him no more. As long as Jesus was performing the miracles, as long as he was opening the eyes of the blind and feeding 5,000 people, as long as Jesus was casting out demons and cleansing lepers, everybody was ecstatic. But when Jesus began to lay responsibility on their lives, when Jesus began to say to them that they needed to leave behind their old ways and begin to follow him, that they needed to recognize that the things of this world do not satisfy, that he alone can satisfy, we're told that they took offense at what he had to say, and they turned back and they followed him no more. So when you turn back to Matthew chapter 21 and you get to the story of the triumphal entry, you can't help but ask yourselves, why is Jesus so popular again? Those huge crowds that had followed him up in Galilee had turned back. They weren't following him by this point. It wasn't as though there was a huge entourage following Jesus and the 12 when they made their way south from Galilee to Jerusalem and into Jericho. The crowds had dissipated. But all of a sudden, when you get to chapter 21 and his entry into Jerusalem, the crowds are back again. There's pandemonium. What accounts for the change? Well, here again, reading through some of the other Gospels, we get some insight into what is happening. Turn to John chapter 11 for just a moment. Remember that half of John's Gospel is given over to just the last eight days of Jesus' life. So when you get to John chapter 11, we are already halfway through the story of Jesus' ministry. Chapter 11 begins with the story of the death of Lazarus and the raising of Lazarus. Now, you will recall that this was not the first time that Jesus had raised somebody from the dead. The Gospels mentioned that at least three people had been raised from the dead by Jesus. 
One was Jairus's daughter. Jairus was a synagogue ruler and his little girl died. And we're told that Jesus went in and raised her from the dead. The other person Jesus had raised from the dead was the widow of Nain's son. And the third person that Jesus is recorded as having raised from the dead is this man, Lazarus. Now, what's fascinating about each of those miracles is that each one gets more intense and exciting than the one before. In the case of Jairus's daughter, we're told that the synagogue ruler had come to Jesus, pleading with him to come and heal his daughter, who was sick and at the point of death, but she had not died. And so Jesus agrees to go with him, and they're traveling toward uh, Jairus's house, when all of a sudden Jesus encounters a woman with a chronic bleeding disorder who reaches out and touches the hem of his cloak, and she is healed. And as a result of being delayed by this woman, we're told that the little girl in the interim dies. In fact, I a report comes from Jairus's house saying, there's no need to bother the teacher anymore. Your little girl has already died. Uh, Jesus takes Jairus by the hand and he says, don't be afraid, just believe. They arrive at the house and we're told that mourners were already gathering there. There was a lot of weeping and wailing. And we're told Jesus put the mourners out of the house. He took two of his disciples and the girl's parents and they went up to the upper room and Jesus took the little girl by the hand and he said, Talithe kume, which is to say, little girl, get up. And immediately her heart began to beat again. The blood began to course through her veins and the little girl sat up. It was a great miracle. But what you'll notice is that on that particular instance, the girl had not been dead for very long. She had only been dead perhaps for a little while. Her body perhaps was still warm. That's not the case with the raising of the widow of Nain's son. When you come to that story, it's even more intense. We're told Jesus was making his way into the city and a funeral cortege was making its way out of the city. In other words, this man, this boy had already died and they were in the process of burying him. And we're told that Jesus comes up and he touches the body and the boy sits up. So that's more exciting, more intense, because he'd been dead for some time. Now, according to Jewish custom in the first century, you generally buried somebody on the day that they died. So this boy had been dead, not for a very long time, but for hours at least, perhaps for the entire day. It's even more impressive than the raising of Jairus's daughter from the dead. But when you get to John chapter 11, this is the most intense and the most exciting of all of these resurrections. Because we're told that when Jesus arrived in Bethany and asked to see Lazarus's body, he was told that they couldn't roll away the stone because the body had already been in the tomb for four days. And here's the really impressive thing. We're told that a huge number of people had come out from Jerusalem to comfort Mary and Martha in their grief. Bethany was a village that was very close to Jerusalem, just a few miles, just over the mountain. Uh, and so people could travel very easily to Bethany. So the word had already spread that Lazarus had died. He was not only dead, but he had been buried. He'd been in the grave for four days. When Jesus said, roll away the stone, Martha objects. She says, you can't do that. There's going to be an odor by now. The old King James version put it best. It said, he stinketh. So this is, a, this is a situation where it's not where somebody has just died or, or somebody is in the process of being buried. This man has been in the grave, and what's more, the body has already started to decompose. 
And yet, what does Jesus do? He performs the greatest of his miracles. And not only the greatest of his miracles, raising this man whose body had already started to decompose, but the most public of all of his miracles. Uh, one of the things that's fascinating about Jesus' ministry is that he would oftentimes perform miracles, and then he would say to people, now don't tell anybody about this. Uh, this had been the case when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He told the, boy, the girl's parents, the, the man and the wife, that they were not to tell anybody about this. Now, you could just imagine how difficult that would have been for a person. If you had just seen somebody raised from the dead and you're told not to say anything about it, that would have been a very difficult thing to do. Jesus frequently told people not to say anything about his miracles. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But more often than not, they did. They went out and they told everybody about it. They, they just couldn't keep the secret. Well, here in John chapter 11, that's not the case. Jesus performs this miracle. It's very public. Lots of people witnessed it. And as a result, Jesus becomes a hero again. So John explains to us why the crowds having dissipated are suddenly back. You'll notice that John chapter 11 tells the story of the death of Lazarus. If you look ahead to John chapter 12, one chapter later, that chapter records the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So that helps us to understand why the people were all excited about Jesus. He had just performed a great miracle, raising somebody that everybody knew had been dead and in the grave for four days. Only the, the, the Messiah could do something like that. And then in the very next chapter, what does Jesus do? He sets his face toward Jerusalem. He's going to the holy city. He's going there during the Passover. And people begin to add things up. They put two and two together, and they begin to realize that Jesus may, in fact, be the Messiah. For who could do these things except the Savior of the people? And we know, we know that that's what the people were thinking. Because in John chapter 11, toward the end, we're told that the Jewish religious leaders, who by this point were living in opposition to Jesus, were greatly distressed. Look at John chapter 11. John chapter 11, beginning at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Verse 54 says, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness. In other words, this miracle was so public and it astonished the people to such a degree that the Jewish religious leaders began to plot Jesus' demise. They say it's better that this one man die than the Romans come and take away our nation. So all of this is a setup. All of this is a setup. Now you can begin to understand the crowds have fallen away, but now as Jesus is preparing to head into Jerusalem, 
the crowds are back. And the crowds are back because this miracle has astonished everybody. Mary and Martha were well-known figures. We're told that large numbers of Jews had come out of the city to comfort them in their mourning. Large numbers of people had witnessed this. Even the Jewish religious leaders had become distressed as a consequence. So when Jesus enters Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, there is pandemonium. This is the reason why people are taking off their cloaks and throwing them in front of his donkey. This is the reason why they're cutting the palm branches from the trees and shouting Hosanna in the highest, because they believe that the miracle worker, the Messiah, had at last arrived. This was a planned demonstration, carefully orchestrated by Jesus from start to finish. It reminds me of another entry into Jerusalem that took place many years later on December 11th, 1917. During World War I, that portion of Palestine that we call the Middle East today was actually under the control of the Ottoman Empire. It was an empire that had been in existence for centuries, and they were the undisputed rulers of this region. But the Ottomans made a fatal mistake. During the Great War, they decided to ally themselves with the Central Powers. That is to say, with Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Bulgaria. And when the Central Powers were defeated by the Allies in 1918, the Ottoman Empire, for all intents and purposes, came to an end. And that portion of the Middle East came under the control of the British. This was the beginning of the British mandate that lasted the whole way to the end of the Second World War and the creation of the modern state of Israel in 1946. But the man who was responsible, the British general who was responsible for defeating the Ottomans in what became known as the great Syria-Palestine campaign was General Edmund Allenby. He was a brilliant commander. Um, it was believed by the British that this portion of the war was so important to their interest that they actually pulled troops out of Europe and reinforced Allenby down here in the Sinai Peninsula. And it was his responsibility to seize Jerusalem and defeat the Ottomans, which he did on December 11th, 1917. It was a great victory. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie um, starring Peter O'Toole, um, which depicts all of this, um, you know that uh, T.E. Eliot um, was one of Allenby's subordinate officers. Um, so this was the campaign, uh, December 11th, 1917. Allenby takes Jerusalem. And when he took the city, it was expected that he was going to ride into the city in triumph. Uh, most of his subordinate officers were advising him that in the minds of Middle Eastern people, it is very important to show that you have been victorious. It is very important to impress upon them that they are defeated and that they are subject to a new authority. And the way you did that was through symbol. And so Allenby was expected to ride into the city with trumpets blaring, to remind the Ottomans and the people in Jerusalem that they had been subjugated. But Allenby was concerned about this. Having won a great victory, he knew that British interests would only be served if there was peace in the region. And he knew that if he went riding into the city of Jerusalem as a conquering hero, he would have shamed the people of that region. And the worst thing that you could ever do to people in the Middle East was to shame them, to shame them publicly. Furthermore, Allenby also recognized that in 1897, the German Kaiser, Wilhelm II, 
had also ridden into Jerusalem as a conquering hero and forced the Ottomans to ally themselves with him. And that, of course, is what inaugurated the First World War. So Allenby didn't want to be perceived as that kind of a conquering hero. And there's this wonderful story where he rides up to the Jaffa Gate just outside of Jerusalem, and then to everyone's surprise, he dismounts. He gets off his horse. Uh, his staff officers are befuddled by this. They didn't understand what he was doing. Uh, they encourage him to mount back up, ride into the city as a conquering hero, but he refuses to do it. Instead, he hands his horse to one of his officers, and he walks through the Jaffa Gate on foot. It was a sign of tremendous humility. Everybody knew that he had been the victor, but what he was signaling to the people of Jerusalem was that he was a victor who had come not to make war, but to make peace. And that's how uh, the British mandate began. And as I said, the British ruled over this portion of the world. It was the longest period of peace the Middle East has ever known. And it started in 1917, it lasted to 1946, and it was all because Allenby, the conquering hero, came in on foot. An act of humility, a sign of peace, a planned demonstration. Planned demonstration. Well, when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem with the crowds in pandemonium, as I said, he made a planned entrance. Look again, if you go back to Matthew chapter 21, to the story of the triumphal entry. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And verse 4 records, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So picture it. Crowds are enthusiastic. Jesus has performed a great miracle. He's left Bethany. He's headed toward Jerusalem. The crowds are following him. The people who had witnessed this wonderful miracle, the raising of Lazarus, they're shouting, they're cheering, they're tearing the palm branches. And Jesus, just before he gets to Jerusalem, mounts this donkey, a donkey that he has set aside, and he mounts that donkey and he rides into the city. Now, every Jew of the first century knew what that meant. They knew the prophecy from Zechariah 9. They had been praying, praying for decades, praying for centuries that God would send a Messiah. And the prophet had foretold that when the Messiah came, the Savior of his people, he would ride into Jerusalem, listen to this, on the, bank, on the back of a donkey. So when Jesus mounted that donkey and rode over the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley, up to the city of Jerusalem, through that golden gate, the gate called Beautiful, Jesus was clearly sending a message to everyone, the message that he was indeed the Messiah, the Savior of the people. Just to give you an idea of just how important this prophecy was to people, if you go to the Holy Land today, 
and you stand on the Mount of Olives. And some of you have actually been to the Holy Land with me. And you've stood there on the Mount of Olives and you've looked down toward the city of Jerusalem. You can see that the, the winding path that Jesus took on that day goes down off the Mount of Olives. It goes through this, this gully known as the Kidron Valley, and then it rises back up again to the city of Jerusalem. And you can see the Golden Gate, the gate that Jesus entered through on that first Palm Sunday. It's a little bit of a different scene today because that whole area from the Kidron Valley up to the Golden Gate today is one vast cemetery. And here's what's really fascinating. It's not just a cemetery. It's a Muslim cemetery. And do you know why it's a Muslim cemetery today? It's because the Muslims were well aware of the fact that when the Jewish Messiah came, he would come riding on a donkey. He would come riding down through the Kidron Valley up through the Golden Gate. And so they began to bury their people there because they know, knew that no Jewish Messiah, whenever he showed up, would ever pass through what they regarded, the Jews regarded, as a pagan cemetery. It would have made them ritually unclean. And so this was a Muslim attempt, think about that, a Muslim attempt to somehow thwart the prophecy from being fulfilled. What they didn't know was that the Messiah had already come. He'd already ridden through that area. He had already passed through the Golden Gate. So the point here is that when Jesus presented himself in this way, after having raised Lazarus from the dead, there was no doubt whatsoever what he was doing. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, for behold, your king is coming to you righteous, and having salvation is he. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, what does this mean? Well, the first thing that it means is that the messianic secret is out. As I said earlier, Jesus from time to time would perform a great miracle, and then he would tell people to keep it to themselves. Uh, there is a phrase in the Gospel of John. Uh, the phrase is the hour. You hear that phrase over and over again. It's a continuous refrain, the hour, the hour, the hour. It refers to that great moment in Jesus' life when he would fulfill his purpose on earth. And in John's Gospel, of course, as in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that hour is the moment of his crucifixion and his resurrection. That's what Jesus had come to earth to do. But over and over again, Jesus would keep his true identity to himself. You recall that his first miracle was at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Remember that they ran out of wine and his mother came to him and she said, they have run out of wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. We find this later on in the Gospels. We're told that the Lord's disciples wanted him to go to Jerusalem. He'd been performing all of these great miracles up in Galilee. Huge crowds, as I said, had followed him early in his ministry. The disciples thought it would be a great idea if Jesus would go to Jerusalem and do the same things that he was doing in Galilee. And Jesus said, you can go to Jerusalem if you want. I cannot. My hour has not yet come. On another occasion, the Jewish religious leaders became so upset with Jesus, we're told they led him out to the brow of a hill and were ready to throw him off. But the gospel says he passed through them without harm because his hour had not yet come. 
Jesus' hour, that moment for him to be revealed, had not come. For three years he ministered, but he kept the secret as to who he was to only a few, to his disciples, and to those portions of the crowd that were spiritually mature enough to receive the message. But when Jesus presented himself on that donkey, having raised Lazarus from the dead, and was heading toward Jerusalem for the last time, what he was saying was that the secret is out. I'm not keeping it to myself anymore. I am indeed the one. I am the promised Messiah. I am the Savior of my people. I am the King. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming to you. Now, you will recall that this whole theme of kingship has been the continuous theme of the Gospel of Matthew. Each of the Gospels has a particular focus. Matthew's focus is to present Jesus as the king of his people. Let's just walk through this for a moment. Uh, go back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 2. We're going to sort of make a, a quick survey of this gospel and this theme. In Matthew chapter 2, we're told that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So at the very beginning of the story of Jesus' life and ministry on earth, he is acclaimed even by wise men traveling from the east as a what? As a king. And part of the gifts that they brought was the gift for kings, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So at the very beginning, even as a babe, Jesus is acclaimed, at least by the Gentiles, as a king. You'll recall that's the whole reason why Herod wanted to have all the babies in Bethlehem put to death, because he was afraid that there was a new pretender to the throne. So at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is declared to be a what? A king. You go on to Matthew chapter 3, and you have the beginning of the public ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And when John came preaching in the Judean wilderness, what was his message? His message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was the forerunner of Jesus, and he's telling the people to get ready. Why? Because the kingdom has come. And the reason the kingdom has come is because the king has come. In Matthew chapter 4, we have the story of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, his temptation in the wilderness, and then Jesus, having come out of that temptation, begins his own public ministry, and what does he preach? What was the message that Jesus proclaimed? It was the same message that John had proclaimed. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is telling the people that they need to turn from their wickedness, turn to him. Why? Because the kingdom has come, the king has arrived. If you turn to Matthew chapter 5, the very next chapter, you have the story of the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, what do we have? We have a picture of what citizenship in the kingdom of God looks like. We have a picture of what kingdom living in a fallen world is really all about. That's what Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is really all about. It's about the kingdom of God. You skip ahead to Matthew chapter 13, and you discover that Jesus' parables are all parables about what? about the kingdom. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. 
But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Skip down to verse 31, chapter 13. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. You skip on down to verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea. Over and over again in his parables, Jesus is talking about what? The kingdom. This is the thread that runs through the gospel of Matthew. At the very beginning of the story, Jesus is declared to be a king by the wise men. John's message is to repent. Why? Because the kingdom has arrived. Jesus preaches the same message. The Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that Jesus ever delivered, is about what? It's about the kingdom of God and what citizenship in that kingdom really looks like. The parables are all about the kingdom of God. And even when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate in Matthew chapter 27, the charge that was brought against him by the Jewish religious leaders was what? This man claims to be a king. And as Jesus was dying on the cross, giving up his last breath, we're told that the placard that was hanging over his head read, these, read like this. This is the king of the Jews. So when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, having performed this great miracle in Bethany, that little village only about three or four miles outside of Jerusalem. And when he entered that city, mounted on that donkey in fulfillment of that prophecy from the Old Testament, everybody knew what he was doing. He was presenting himself as the king. He was letting the secret out. The hour had come for him to be revealed for who he really was. But here's what's important. While Jesus came as a king, he was a king who came not to make war. Like Allenby, he was a conquering hero who came in peace. That's the significance of riding on the donkey. Donkeys were not ignoble animals in the ancient world. Kings actually rode donkeys. And we're told in the Old Testament that when Solomon was chosen to be David's successor, David actually took Solomon, placed him on his own donkey, and led him up to meet the prophet and the high priest. So kings rode donkeys, but more often than not, they rode horses. They rode horses because they were conquering heroes. If they rode a donkey, it's because they were coming in peace. Matthew's gospel is telling us that the one who entered Jerusalem came to be the king of the people. But he was a king who came in peace. Now it's true. The New Testament makes it very clear. There will come a time when Jesus will come as the conquering hero. You get to the end of the biblical narrative. You get to the end of the book of Revelation. And you discover that Jesus is depicted there not as one who comes in peace, but as one who is mounted on a white horse who comes to make war against his enemies. But at least here, on this entrance into Jerusalem, when his hour had arrived, as Jesus is preparing to mount the arms of the cross for the sins of the whole world, he wants the people to know that he has come to bring peace. He's come to bring peace with God, and he's come to bring the peace of God. 
we have a great hymn that we sometimes sing at this time of the year. It's called Lead On, O King Eternal. It's appropriate for Palm Sunday. Listen to these words. Lead on, O King Eternal, the day of march has come. Henceforth in fields of conquest, thy tent shall be our home. Through days of preparation, thy grace has made us strong. And now, O King Eternal, we lift our battle song. It sounds like the church militant, doesn't it? It sounds like an army on the move, onward Christian soldiers. But then you lead the second stanza. Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease, and holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, thy heavenly kingdom comes. So Jesus is making it clear to the people he is the king, but he comes riding humbly on the back of a donkey to let them know that he comes as a king to bring peace. He comes to bring peace. Now this raises an important question. How are these people going to receive Jesus? He's coming into the city, the city of kings. He's presented himself as a king. How are they going to receive him? Well, verse 9 of today's reading says that there was, as I said, a great celebration. Uh, the people were enthusiastic. They're tearing the palm branches from the trees, and they are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. That word, Hosanna, can be loosely translated, save us. Save us now. And that phrase, son of David, was actually a messianic title. Everybody knew that the Messiah, the king, when he come, would be an heir of David. So what the people were doing was acknowledging Jesus to be the one who would save them and the one who was, in fact, the heir of David. And as they're coming down off the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley, shouting, Hosanna in the highest, cheering, we're told, verse 10, the whole city was stirred. All of Jerusalem was brought to a boiling point, and people began to ask, who is this? Now, when they're asking the question, who is this? They're asking the question, who is this that you are saying is the Messiah? Who is this that you are saying is the son of David? Remember, these people had followed Jesus all the way from Bethany, over the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, up to Jerusalem. And as they, this, this great entourage is making its way into the city through the gates, the people in the city are stirred. They can hear the, sound, the sounds, they can hear the shouts. They're wondering what in the world is going on, and they begin to ask the people who are cheering, who is this? You're saying that the son of David has come, the Messiah has come, the king has arrived. Who is this king? Who is this Messiah? Who is the son of David? The secret's been hidden for so long. Who is the one that we've been waiting for? And the answer that comes back is, he is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. He is the Messiah. What an amazing revelation to the people of Jerusalem. And what's amazing in particular is that this was the right answer. That's exactly who Jesus was. That's who he was presenting himself to be. That's what this gospel narrative is all about. It's what the other gospels are all about. Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah. He was the long-promised, long-anticipated son of David who had come to set his people free. 
But while it was the right answer, we know it was the wrong understanding. Because we know by the end of the week, those shouts of Hosanna in the highest are going to become shouts of what? Shouts of crucify him, crucify him. The attitude is going to change very quickly. You see, Jesus failed to measure up to the people's understanding of what the king was going to do. Oh, he had come to be lifted up, but not lifted up upon a throne. He'd come to be lifted up on a tree to be cursed for the sins of humanity. Oh, yes, he had come to defeat the enemy of the people, but the enemy was not the Roman Empire. The enemy was the, the, enemy was the sin that takes a grip on our life and holds us in bondage. That's what Jesus had come to free his people from. And that's not what they were looking for. That's not the kind of king that they were hoping they would find. And as I said, by the end of the week, they would completely turn on him. And they would crucify their king. Well, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Are we going to do better than the people of Jerusalem? You know, Jesus doesn't always measure up to our expectations. Jesus doesn't always do what we think he ought to do. When Jesus fails to measure up to what we hope, do we turn our backs on him? When the king presents himself, will we acknowledge him as our sovereign? Will we fling wide the portals of our hearts and allow the king to come in? Will we do better than the people of Jerusalem did? The psalmist says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. You see, as Jesus presents himself as the king to the people of Jerusalem, he presents himself as the king to us. And he presses on us the same question that he pressed on the disciples, that he pressed on the people of this city. The question, who do you say that I am? Remember, that was the question that Jesus put before his disciples up there at Caesarea Philippi. He said to them, well, who are, what are men saying about me? And everybody had an answer. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter was the one who spoke on behalf of the others and said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. But you'll recall that even though Peter got the answer right, he too had the wrong attitude because when Jesus then went on to explain what that meant, how he was going to have to go to Jerusalem and be betrayed into the hands of his enemies and crucified, it was Peter who said, God forbid that can't happen to you. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus presented himself as the king as he rode into the city and the people of Jerusalem initially at least were ecstatic about it, but they soon turned against him. Well, the question we have to answer is, will we accept Jesus? Will we do better than the disciples did up there in Caesarea Philippi? Will we do better than the people of Jerusalem? It's a question that each and every one of us as an individual has to answer. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, I am trying to present, prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him that I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. For a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, 
or else he would be the devil of hell. But you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Lewis is saying there are three options when it comes to Jesus, and we all have to make our choice. He is either who he claims to be, that is to say, the Lord, the King of glory, or he is a liar, or he is a lunatic. But those are the only three options open to you. If Jesus claimed to be the king, to be the savior of the people, the savior of the world, but he wasn't, then he was either a lunatic, a man who thought that he was the son of God, but really wasn't, or he was a liar, a deceiver or he was who he claimed to be. But those are the only options open to us. And the disciples had to make their choice. The people of Jerusalem had to make their choice. And you and I have to make our choice. Jesus presented himself in such a way that there could be no doubt, no doubt in the minds of anyone as to who he was. Well, tell me, Will you open wide your heart to Jesus Christ? Another one of the great hymns, and I love the old hymns. They're filled with such wonderful theology. One of the great hymns of the church we also sing around this time of the year, particularly on Palm Sunday, is this hymn, Lift Up Your, Ga your Heads, Ye Mighty Gates. It's not simply a description of what happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It's supposed to be a picture of what happens to us when Jesus Christ presents himself as our king. And we have even greater evidence as to his identity than the people of Jerusalem did on that first Palm Sunday. They had the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. You and I have the miracle of Jesus' death on Calvary and all the miracles associated with that. And the most important miracle of all, Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. You and I have the evidence that I presented on Easter, the evidence of the church, the evidence of changed lives. And as Jesus presents himself to us in all of these ways, the question we have to ask ourselves is this, will we acknowledge him as our king? Will we humbly bow before him and allow our sovereign to come in and take possession? Or will we, when he fails to meet our expectations like the people of Jerusalem, turn against him? That old hymn goes like this, lift up your heads, ye mighty gates, Behold, the king of glory waits. The king of kings is drawing near. The savior of the world is near. Fling wide the portals of your heart. Make it a temple set apart for earthly use for heaven's employ, adorned with prayer and love and joy. Redeemer, come, I open wide my heart to thee here, Lord, abide. Let me thy inner presence feel, thy grace and love in me reveal. Jesus' presentation of himself as the king in Matthew chapter 21 was an amazing story, and he left no doubt whatsoever 
as to who he was presenting himself to be. He presents himself still as the king of glory. And remember that a king, particularly in the ancient world, was not some sort of constitutional monarch. Kings don't run for re-election. Kings don't rule with the pleasure of the people. A king is an absolute ruler. And that's how Jesus presents himself to you and to me. He presents himself as the absolute sovereign, and he asks the question, will I find entrance in your life? Will I find room? Will you open wide the portals of your heart as the people of Jerusalem opened wide the portals of that city, that I may come in, and that I may come in and be your sovereign, because I come humbly. Jesus says, I come in peace. I come to give you the very thing that you long for that peace which passes human understanding. If you've never made a decision about who Jesus Christ is, today is the day to do that. For the one who comes humbly will one day come with great triumph and great joy to judge the quick and the dead. May he find in us a temple prepared for himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We thank you that he set the stage so that no one could be in any doubt as to who he really was. We cannot be in any doubt as to who he is either. So open our minds, open our hearts, fill us with the Holy Spirit, convict us of our sins, and grant us the grace to turn to Jesus Christ and accept him not merely as our Savior to deliver us, but as our King, as our Sovereign, to reign on the throne of our hearts. Grant this, Lord, that we may do better than the people of Jerusalem, that we may not only declare Jesus to be the King, but live in such a way that he really is. All this we ask in his name and for his sake, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.